Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1958 film, The Defiant Ones. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Barrett, this is a movie that I had not, I don't, I think I had heard the title before, um, but I don't know that I had, uh, I knew much about this film. Um, so this was a, definitely a first viewing for me. What is your history with, with this film? And then after that, I want to talk a little bit about Stanley Kramer more broadly, but what's your history with this film specifically? Yeah, this is another film that I had known about for a number of years, but I had never, I had actually also never seen uh, Sam. It had been my aspiration to, to track it down at some point. So when I had the excuse with Sidney Poitier's death, it was one of the reasons I decided to do, I decided to do this film for a number of reasons, but one of them was it was, a uh, Poitier film I'd always wanted to see. I love the idea of pairing him with uh, Tony Curtis. So uh, it was a new one for me too. So what were your expectations coming into this film then? I mean, you obviously knew that this has, this, this, this movie has a, a really simple elevator pitch, like to set up, okay, here's what it's going to be. But what were, what were your expectations going in? Well, you know, my, my expectations going in are kind of will, uh, will sort of bleed into a conversation about Stanley Kramer, because I, I knew enough about Kramer's films to know that I was going to, I was going to get something that was going to be dramatic, but at the same time, um, didactic may be the wrong word, but Kramer is a, was an issues director. Uh, he wanted to engage all kinds of social issues. He consistently did that. So I knew that it was a film that would be on the, well, let's put it this way, it would be on the liberal side of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I knew a little bit, obviously, about its historical context. And I also knew that this was the first in a series of films that Poitier made with a number of directors that were intended to engage explicitly issues of race relations in, in, in America. So I kind of went into it knowing that um, it would be too strong to say that I was going to be preached to, uh, but it would be accurate to say that I knew there would be a pretty clear message. Um, it, what other Stanley Kramer films, like, like what, are the, what are the, if somebody has seen a Stanley Kramer film, what, what might they likely be? Well, it's okay. I think it's probably a couple. It uh, it might be Inherit the Wind, uh, which he uh, made. I think it was the year before this film, or it might be um, problem. Perhaps Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is another one of his um, social uh, issue films with Sidney Poitier. Those are probably the two that he's best known for. Or maybe uh, in a very different vein, it's a Mad, 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 Mad World uh, uh, was a Stanley Kramer film. Uh, and you don't think of that as an issue film, uh, but it's been characterized as a film, which is a critique of greed. So there you go. Well, wow. uh, listeners can't see the face that I made, but I am a big fan of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. I had no idea that that was, that that was the same filmmaker as this. I've seen Inherit the I actually love his version of Inherit the Wind. Um, I think that's a really, a really interesting play. Uh, I've seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That left less of an impression on me. Probably because I didn't see it in the late 60s. So like it, my viewing of that was definitely clouded by like, oh, this meant something very particular at a time. Now, obviously, I'm sure it still has some of that resonance, but um, <clears throat> that, that's really interesting. Now, the other thing that that is uh, fascinating about this movie, um, at least to me, uh, was a name that I had never heard before, uh, but it's who wrote the original story for this was a guy named Nedrick Young who is a blacklisted writer um, from the House Un-American Activities Committee refusing to uh, to name names. So this is part of the um, sort of red scare in Hollywood. And this is um, a little bit post this, 
I think I think I was reading that six weeks before the Oscar nominations this year, the Oscars changed their policy to allow people who have been blacklisted to be nominated for Oscars. So Nedrick Young wins an Oscar for um, in part for this uh, th- this screenplay, this story. Um, but it's definitely not surprising to see that this film was made by a blacklisted writer. Um, can you talk a little bit about about like the effects of maybe HUAC on on Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of effects. I mean, obviously, one effect, the one you've already alluded to, is writers, who, uh, writers, uh, directors, uh, actors who couldn't get work because they had been blacklisted, some of whom then were able to work under aliases, pseudonyms, because um, they were supported by other, by other uh, creatives. Um, but then there also were those who kind of were singled out as uh, as rats, uh, those who actually did testify and uh, either spoke the truth or said what the committee kind of wanted to hear. So it created a lot of created a lot of dissension within Hollywood about kind of who who had been faithful and, and who who had, had not been. And some of, some of the accusations were accurate. Some of them some of them were not. But it really it put a lot of really good people out of work for a while or they had to find work kind of surreptitiously. Well, I will say, you know, because uh, I, I read about Nedrick Young after watching this, um, and the thing that, that is unsurprising about hearing this is I looked at this movie, which is so absolutely clearly about race in America, and my takeaway was, this is about race, but this is also about class in America a lot, and it's like, okay, that perfectly makes sense, that sort of the intersection of race and class is the kind of thing that um, you know, somebody who might be on the uh, the anti-HUAC side of of you know thinking about you know the thirties, nineteen thirties communism, those types of things. It's like, yep, yeah, I, like uh, this this uh, fits very well into it, even to the point where I mean, I think you could use this film if you were teaching a a, a course on labor history. There, I mean, although this film seems to have nothing of, explicitly about that, there's lots of moments where I would at least you could show scenes of this to talk about the complexities of race and labor history in America in the late 19th, uh, 20th century. I, I think this actually has all kinds of interesting things to say about that. Well, I think another potential element, Sam, this, this may be stretching a bit, but, um, and I can't remember if we touched on this with all about Eve or not, but one of the elements of the Red Scare was also the Lavender Scare, which was a suspicion of homosexuals. So it's interesting to me that we have um, a relationship between two men which in my view has nothing homoerotic about it, yet at the same time, you often see them in the embrace of each other, which is of course practical because of the chain between them. But it seems to me that there's a possibility that Kramer was also kind of looking at that element of HUAC and saying, you know, we can show men in a, in, in a serious emotional relationship uh, and, not, and not think that there's somehow something depraved or wrong about that. Absolutely. Uh, and the other, so this, this film was nominated for a number of Oscars. It won one other Oscar, which I think is also worth noting for, uh, for black and white cinematography. And this is a movie that in lots of ways kind of needs to be in black and white. Cause it's, this is a movie about contrasts, um, contrasts and similarities. So um, I actually just don't think this would be as effective shot in color. I, it's also, a, it's, there's also some pretty beautiful uh shots uh in this movie and some nice moving camera in this movie i i uh yeah i i think i, I really liked the look of this film and it's a lot of it shot outdoors which also matters too i think yeah outdoors and and uh, and night shots as well you know um one of the th- one of the one of the reasons why people like orson wells preferred black and white was and uh, we talked a little bit about wells uh last week with uh, um 
uh, with Peter Bogdanovich advising him on uh, using black and white for paper and moon. But one of the things that uh, Wells always said about black and white was it emphasizes the human figure, especially the human face. Uh, and I think that's obviously very important in this in, in this film that we get, as you said, we get that literal contrast uh, between black and white. One of the things that I liked about this movie, and I, I you know, not knowing anything about Kramer's specifically, um, was like I said, this has a, a very simple elevator pitch to it, um, which has an obvious metaphor in it. I mean, these two people chained together. Um, but what I what I appreciated about this movie is that it doesn't. Although that metaphor is simple, th this movie doesn't rely merely on the the sort of simplistic reading of that. That it actually, I feel like there's a lot uh, there's a lot more complexity um, than just the 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 simple elevator pitch metaphor of the uh, the the two the the black man and the white man chained uh, chained together. Um, uh, as we're talking about filmmaking elements, and this will get us into kind of talking through sort of moments in this film. Uh, this is like with Paper Moon, yet another movie where music is entirely diegetic and almost missing from this, except mm -hmm. when it's there, it is so obviously there. And there's really only two sources of music. So it, so it opens on uh, Cullen, uh, the Sidney Poitier character, uh, singing the song uh, Long Gone um, in the back of this prison truck as it's transporting prisoners. Um and uh, and that you know that 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 becomes something which is going to come back later uh, later in this this movie as well. Uh, significance to that to that song to the words of that song. Well, you know, it's a it's a social commentary. Uh, it's a song about um, both both captivity and liberation. I guess you could think about it. You think about it that way. Um, and and singing the song, I think what's significant about it, of course, is singing the song is an act of rebellion. But of course, it also takes you back to the slave spirituals, and it, and it takes you, it takes you back to uh, singing in the cotton fields and singing as a source of uh, social solidarity. Singing as a source of hope, and and that, and that's and what I love about that song because it's, it's a bluesy song, right? So it's both a song of mournfulness and it's a song of hope. Um, but for, mostly, I think it's a it's a song of self assertion uh, that, uh, that that he's uh, that he's singing. Mm -hmm. And and so so we get this we uh, we get this first really beautiful shot of so you 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 start with with you hear him singing but you're in the front of the cab mm -hmm. and the 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 two I guess prison guards are are talking and kind of upset at him singing and they they yell back at him and then you cut to the shot of the window looking at the cab and it and there's a really great pullback to see all of the prisoners. And then this was where we get the, the initial confrontation between uh, Joker, who is the, the Tony Curtis character and Cullen. Um, and you get, um, you get, you know, him using, using the N word, right. And, and this, mm -hmm. this becomes this, this initial um, moment of confrontation. So if we, if we didn't already know that, that these two were going to be at odds with each other, that becomes the, um, uh, sort of the original sin in this moment to be like, okay, well, we, we know this now. We know that these two, that, that they're, it, it, the use of that word and the way that that scene plays out sort of tells you something about who Tony Curtis is uh, and, and, and um, Cullen's response to it tells you something about who he, who he is as well. Um, and then we get the, the sort of the truck accident almost instantly as they're about to fight. Uh, and we get this shot that is, um, reminds me so much of, 
the you know early 90s the fugitive right so with the, uh-huh. the truck rolling over and the prisoners and the escape and what was interesting about this is like these are convicts who have committed a crime and they're on the run but it's not like they planned an escape <laughs> It would like there was just an opportunity and they took it. Right. So there it's, you know, so so it's sort of like, is that a is that a crime if they're if you're in a truck accident and you're free? Like, I actually don't know. Are you supposed everybody else just sit around and say, I guess I'll wait for the authorities to come pick us up. I presume most of the other people were injured so they couldn't run. Yeah, because they yeah, they. Yeah, they say there's no fatalities and you see a bunch of people, you see a bunch of bodies kind of being carted off. So I assume, yeah, I assume that they're injured. And uh, yeah, whereas Colin and and Joker don't have a scratch on him, evidently. But that's a very ethical, right? I mean, if, 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 yeah, if if you get out of the truck, do you have to stand there and say, you know, come, 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 come pick me up or are you free to make your own way? Yeah, I mean, it, like honestly, like like is that a, is that a crime or not? I don't know. I mean, I, that's that's you know they, they obviously are guilty of other things, but that the thing they're being chased for is it's it's actually really an interesting uh, setup there. So from here, then we get these two intercutting stories. We mm-hmm. get the story of of Colin and Joker, and we get the story of the uh, the the pursuers, which is also a very it's a much it's a smaller story. You get less of that, but it's really really an interesting story as well. Um, so I want to I want to stick with Cullen and Joker and then go back to the police instead of intercutting the conversations because I think that gets that gets confusing. Um, so there's a number of it's it's it sort of intercut them on the run and them stopping and having conversations as mm-hmm. they go. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get the first debate about whether to go north or to go south. Um, right. And what I what I love about the screenplay is there's things in that conversation that then at very end of the movie come back so mm-hmm. um you know cullen mentions like okay if we go south once the chain is broken between us then i am just like a a sole black convict in the white south <laughs> you know and it's like okay what what like 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 what is there to protect me there right and we're gonna see when we get to the scene where their chains actually get broken there is this kind of realignment with the group of people around there, or at least Cullen perceives a realignment and there actually is kind of a realignment. Well, I think, I, I think that's a good place to start Sam, because I think one of the, one of the dynamics in, in their relationship is the question of who has the power, um, who has the knowledge and who has the physical prowess, et cetera. So I think it's interesting in that conversation that, that Cullen gets to assert his, control over over the uh, over their their route um be just just because of his particular situation and i think the one thing that happens in the film we'll talk more about this is that that power that control kind of keeps shifting back and forth one of the things that kramer tries to construct the screenplay tries to construct is a certain kind of equality between the two characters in a number of different ways whether it's in knowledge power social position whatever this is really a film about trying to show how whites and blacks are in some ways equal, um, which has a lot to do as we'll also talk about with this historical context of the film as well. Well, and, and, and what's interesting is um, especially early on, but really throughout the movie, as long as they're chained together, there is this sense of like, they will do something to help the other person, but all of those things can also be read as read as a selfish act. It's like, well, I, you know, when we get to the river, right. It's like, I didn't pull you out to save you. I pulled you out so you wouldn't pull me in. And it's like, okay, well, that's maybe not a benevolent act. You know, it's, it's a, it's a self-preservation act, but it may not, you know, if they weren't chained together at that point, he's probably not 
risking his life to save Cullen. Which, of course, then when we get to the end of the film, right, it becomes a completely free act, literally mm-hmm. free act on his on his part to, to save Cullen. So that the whole arc of that relationship is really interesting. Yeah, I, I, another conversation I found fascinating um, because this this actually does, I think, intercut interestingly with what's happening with the pursuers is when they're out in the woods talking about the animals. Mm. And uh, because when when we're when we're with the the police, right? There's all this. There's lots of conversations about how you know hunting convicts and hunting rabbits isn't the same thing. You know, some people think it. You know, it's just it's just another hunting trip. And and then the you see Max saying like it's not the same thing. These are men. And then the whole thing with the dogs, like how the dogs are treated and all the care that goes into the dogs versus you know, kind of what they're, what they're, they're hunting after. So then you, so you see, you see that kind of comparison in there, but in between uh, Colin and Joker, you have them, you know, in the woods talking about the animals and Joker. Uh, and then, and, and Colin seems to really understand nature a lot better than Joker. Joker's asking mm. a lot of questions about what's this, what's that sound? What's this um, Joker's like, all I'm listening for is the dogs, but Colin is hearing these other things. So you know, Joker talks about how all all the the bugs and birds are making all of these sounds. There's millions of them, but they can't understand each other. And he's like, "That's that's the problem with all with all of this, right?" And yeah, but, but it's also one more contrast, right? Uh, uh, Joker is is city, and Cullen is country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we find out later on, of course, that, you know, the Cullen about Joker's uh, aspirations uh, to city. I also want to go back to the dogs. Uh, because um, the bloodhounds are light colored and they're uh, they're well taken care of uh, by by the trainer, uh, and the black dogs are the killers. Uh, and yeah. I just I, I just have I just have to believe that we've got a little uh, uh, another commentary going on there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And then and you know and then you also have the conversation about um, the uh, the hunter and the hunted. You know how they're both silent. And they're silent until the end, right? And then at, at the end, you know, and they, they, you know that it's like you spend your whole life being silent until the moment of death, and then you know when they hear the weasel kind of cry out there. Um, uh, the other a conversation which runs throughout there, there's a couple peak moments on this is uh, they they talk kind of about language, right, and the power of words, certain words and certain language. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the 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 joker talking about the word thank you you know or thanks and how um you know at one level it's like well that's just a pleasantry but but to him that became this thing that wore on him because it was an expectation to say thanks you know when he was working as a i think a valet or something right and it's like i'm the one doing them a favor and i have to say thanks and i have to say thanks in order to get the tip and i have to say thanks even if they don't give me a tip and he talks about you know, he talks about that. And then later on, when they're at the turpentine camp, you get Cullen saying, talking about like the idea of be nice, right? Like you said, people are always telling me, be nice, be nice, be nice. Like, and that, that, that there's a kind of a wearing of that, that language on, um, on each of them. Yeah. You know, to me, Sam, that's one of the interesting complexities of the film is that times in which it uses things like language to suggest a kind of um, equivalence between the two, between the two, you know, because one of of the things the film is trying to, at various times tries to assert is that the oppression that uh, Joker feels because of class is 
in some ways equivalent to the oppression that uh, Cullen feels because of race. And so Why? there's a certain Why? element of the film in which they are trying to, to, they're trying to make them equal because they are equally oppressed. At the same time, the film pushes against that, right? Because, you know, t Curtis tries to argue that, well, calling you the N-word is the same as calling me bohonk or cracker. And mm -hmm. Colin resists that. That's not, the, that's not the same thing at all. So I think the film has a lot of sophistication in that, in, in that respect, in that it wants to certain kinds of equality, equalities, but it doesn't, but it recognizes that some of those are not actually equal. And that in a way, one of the things the film is trying to say, which is very, um, very white liberal minded in 1958, right? It's the whole idea of, of a, a kind of colorblindness. You know, we're, we're basically the same. But at the same time, the film recognizes what we now call structural racism. Um, this is not a film about how to overcome structural racism. That's, that's more engaged with another Poitier film like In the Heat of the Night, which, which is another interesting commentary film. I was also saying, no, there's, there's a difference between being called the N-word and being called a cracker. Because you're a white person and you've still got kind of the, the, the upper hand. And there's even the sense at one point of the film, which is really interesting, that race may be to a certain extent a construction. Uh, when, uh, when Cullen tells Joker to put on the blackface with the mud. I mean, it's a sense that it doesn't, you know, rate, it's this thing where just change your appearance and you'll be classified as, as something else. And then that, of course, becomes a debate in the lynching scene. You know, can you lynch him because he's a he's a white he's a white guy? Does that is that difference actually significant? Yeah, no, and and I think this is where this is where I think um, I, I was just that's exactly the point I was going to make in terms of thinking about the 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 words they use to describe each other and how there's a, there's a difference there. And this is where I was getting at with with um, labor history. Like we think about the 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 history of race in America and sort of class and labor in that intersection. There is mm. there is a moment when um, the sort of a late 18th century moment where kind of uh, poor white laborers associated themselves with, I mean, they talked about wage slavery, right? And said like, like, like these are similar things, right? But then there's also a counter movement in that, especially after the end of slavery, when you get the development of Jim Crow to say like, yes, you're poor and white, but that you're still, but that, but you're different than the poor black, right? And that mm -hmm. that part of how um, how class issues can be, are are um, maybe put down or tamped down is by dividing dividing the that class by race, right? And pitting mm -hmm. them against each other. So you get these moments, and I'm so I found that the the really interesting things about this are the moments where. Um, where Joker is allowed to be fluid with like fluid with his identity a little bit. Like, I mean, the fact that he, you know, he puts on the, the mud on his face, right. To, you know, he, you wouldn't see you, you know, there is, there is not an analog to that with, um, with Cullen and you, and, and there's just moments where you see um, like in the lynch mob where, where he, you know, he's saying like he's, he's bargaining in different ways, but then eventually he plays the one, really powerful card that he has, which is you, you can't lynch me. I'm a white man. Right. And he said, so he's like, it's like, he doesn't want to do that, but that's a, that's a, that's something that he has. And then, and then later Colin, when they're tied up, Colin calls him out on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I think, I think one of the really powerful questions um, 
that Cullen asks is when they're tied up and he asks, uh, have you ever seen a lynching? And he says, anybody as scared as you were last night has seen a lynching. And the implication there mm-hmm. is yeah. if you've seen a lynching, you've been part of a lynch mob. You maybe didn't pull the rope, but you were there and you watched it and you were part of it. You know, and then he says, you know, don't worry, you can always just remind them you're a white man. And it's like that. So it speaks to like his fluidity, fluidity of identity where he can identify with Cullen and like, yeah, we're the same, but he can always when he needs to or wants to, he can always push that difference where Cullen can't do that. He's he always he is what he is. Right. And that's um, and, you know, and and I think so, like you said, that's it's pointing to some of those um, sort of social structural problems in that way, too. Well, that's an interesting point, Sam, because earlier on, uh, again, when they were having that discussion about language, N-word, bohunk, whatever, remember, Joker, Joker asserts that that's just the way it is. Uh, you know, so basically, that's just how, not only just society, it's just sort of how the, the world is. Um, and, and in a sense, that's his, that's his fundamental, I mean, that's what he falls back on, you know, that ultimately, it is a society in which Whites have superiority, have power over blacks, and ultimately he's going to fall back on that. And in a sense, um, Cullen doesn't disagree with that. But what he's trying to do, right, is, is help him point to, well, how do you are, are you aware of how you're benefiting from that from that situation? Because earlier on, Cullen, uh, Joker wants to use it as an argument that we're equally oppressed. Now it becomes an argument that you are actually privileged and, and advantaged. And that's the part that Colin can see that Joker really can't, which is which is a classic blindness, right? For those who are in a privileged in a privileged position, not to be able to see the nature of their of their privilege, right? And and and, and even use the privilege without realizing it. Yeah. Another interesting conversation is at the Turpentine camp when they talk about what they're in jail for. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's where where uh, Joker is is again. This is where we're seeing some of that. Um, kind of class leftist stuff here when he talks about like you know he he worked a job and like when he said what he made right Colin was like oh, that's pretty good money and he's like yeah it's 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 fine but not if not if you want to get anywhere else in life right like it's fine to survive on but it's like if you want to be Charlie Potato it's like that you're never going to get the car. you're never going to get the car right you're never going to get and he says like so i would i my what my life was on saturday night i was the thing i i could play the thing i dreamed about but the next morning i was back working on cars and this is where he says you know so i became i realized you were you're either a maker or a taker and i'm a taker and my problem was not th- not that i was a taker but that i wasn't a big enough taker right so there's the idea that like the people who are succeeding in society are the takers but it's like there is sort of the 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 you know kind of white collar version of takers, right? The people mm. who benefit off of these systems and all of this. And my problem wasn't that I was a taker, but that I was just a stealer. Like I was I was too low rent when it came to that. I needed <laughs> I need to be a bigger taker, right? So and in that so there is definitely a like class war <laughs> kind mm. of sense of what he's talking about there, um, which I found really I found that really interesting. Yeah, it, 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 you're, you're right, Sam. It's a, it's a subtext, but it's definitely a, a it's definitely a text, right? This notion of um, you know Kramer is throwing in a little bit of a of a critique of capitalism, a little bit of critique uh, critique of um, uh, any uh, kind of structural inequality at the same time. So he's not he's not unsympathetic to to Joker's point of view, and I think that's why that's what's interesting about the film that it manages that 
you know, you said earlier, what was I expecting? And and I have to say that the film was more complex than what I was expecting, because I because I think it, it's deceptively simple. But once you really start peeling it away, especially those conversations you're talking about, it really is opens up a number of complex issues. So then in that co same conversation, we have Cullen talking about not only why he was uh, why he was uh, the crime he committed. And, and, and it's interesting because in a couple of ways. One is it starts out in such a way that you're like, oh, okay, we, it's Sidney Poitier. We can, we can, we can sympathize with him. He was sort of put upon and, and, uh, but then when, when Joker says, you know, would you, or would you have killed him? I mean, I, I think, I think it was interesting because he's not going to say, no, I, I, I wouldn't have. But the other interesting thing about that conversation, another interesting dynamic that we still see today is the argument between him and his wife, right? About how, how he should behave. And, and, and th there's the notion that, you know, um, he doesn't just want to get along and allow himself to be exploited. He actually wants to assert his, uh, his, his rights. And so that, you know, that's certainly an argument within oppressed groups about how they, about what their relationship should be to the, uh, to, to the oppressor. So Kramer engages that, uh, that as well. And of course, you know, our historical context here is it's the nascent civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. has been asserted, has been asserting the value of nonviolent uh, opposition. Uh, and you could say that in a way, Cullen's wife kind of stands in for that uh, uh, approach. Um, and so, you know, so again, so Kramer is engaging that particular dynamic as well. Well, and even even there's a critique of how religion plays into that dynamic when he's talking about his father, right? He says, you know, we were poor. We had to go. My father, my father was a Bible thumper. We went to church. We didn't have shoes, but we just like the the you know what well, this it's actually is part of the thank you thing, right? And he's like, mm -hmm. I was thank the Lord, thank the Lord. It's yep. like I don't have shoes, but thank the Lord. And it's like that's not an for him. That's not an answer, right? And uh, and the, and, the, and this whole conversation leads to you know um, again. Joe, uh, Joker's trying to like calm him down, you know, and, and kind of like we, in his version is always like, well, just, this is just the way it is. You should, you know, that we just need to accept it. And he said, like, you know, this is don't get mad. He says, well, I, I'm not getting mad. I've been mad my whole life. Like <laughs> this is not, this is not something I'm building up to. This is just, this is just my way of being, you know, that all of these things that we're talking about create a person who, um, that's just, that is just sort of his, you know, how, uh, an element of how he needs to exist. And that's, and that's one of the elements of the rhythm of the film or the rhythm of the relationship that I really like, Sam, you know, when you say don't get mad. I mean, they're, they're, they're constantly having these moments where it's kind of like the, the, there, there are these moments where they sort of seem to be in sync. And then as soon as that happens, something comes up that reveals the differences between them. And it's kind of like this rhythm of in and out as, as they pull closer to each other, they pull away from each other, closer to each other, away from, away from each other. I think it's really finely tuned in that respect. So then from there, we get the um, we get the breaking into the company store and the the lynch mob. And we've we've talked through um, most of that. Um, we get them freed by Lon Chaney Jr. Um, and we see that he is also an ex uh, an ex-con because um, he has the same like scars on his wrist from um, from being chained up. Um, and, 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 and he, of course, has suffered so, social, uh, um, social prejudice as a wolf man. So he, <laughs> right. well, what I found interesting about the, 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 the lynch scene, the, the, the almost lynching scene is when, when his character, Sam comes in and breaks it up and he sort of makes his big speech about like, if you're, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? 
Um, the way that that scene usually plays out is that that, that person kind of comes in and shames everyone and they all walk away. But when he goes back to Mac, the guy who wanted to do it, and he throws the torch at him, Mac walks up and is about to burn them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Mac yeah. is like, no, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And like, and, and that, that was a, it's a small moment, but that's a powerful moment of like, yeah, it's sometimes, sometimes just like, it's not about, can I make the right speech and win somebody over? It's like, he wasn't going to win Mac over. No, no. And I, and I, and I, and I appreciated that because to me, that was a moment of um, kind of heightened realism because I think I, I, you know, I've never, I've never liked those shame moments as though everybody really is going to kind of drop their stones and, and go away. Cause there are people who are going to say, no, I am intent on doing this. And I, and I thought that was wonderfully realistic. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, I think ha- having that, that, uh, that, you know, almost lynching scene when, um, when Joker is bargaining and he's like, well, you know, lynching's illegal and they're going to catch you. And his is like, nobody's going to know who pulled the rope. Like, like there is just sort of the reality of like, this is how these things sort of get, get, um, passed over or or accepted in society is like well we don't know i mean because we also see that whenever the cops come to talk to anybody nobody says anything <laughs> right you know right. so so there there is definitely this sense of like we're not even though we're we're not on the side of these people necessarily we're also not here to part to uh, cooperate with with uh with the police so this then leads to um as they as they run away from this to the the the, the fight which is promised early you know almost right away in the film right they almost in the trucks have have a an actual physical confrontation and here's where that actually comes this is where the uh at least one of the posters for this film is uh, kind of a, a depiction of this. And here again is where they're tipping their hand, I think, to some of these leftist roots. I don't know if, if you, if you, do you know the poster I'm talking about? The like the drawing of the, the two mm-hmm. um, kind yeah, of like, yeah. it doesn't yeah. even look like them. Like they're like overly muscular shirtless. Yes. And this, this, this actually may be drawn by Fred Ellis. It looks like a Fred Ellis drawing who was a, a political cartoonist for the daily worker. I did, um, uh, my graduate work on part of it was on political cartoons from the daily worker. So like, I actually wonder if this is a Fred <laughs> Ellis piece, it looks a lot like the kind of co- um, images you would see in the daily worker. So that's kind uh-huh. of interesting itself. All we need is like a, a capitalist over above them looking down, like holding money bags, looking down at this and we would have a, a daily worker cartoon um, right there. Uh, so I found, I found that interesting that, 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 that like that, that poster scene is, uh, is that, uh, but what's interesting is that this this fight comes out from something that's, I guess the language it's sort of a, a almost like a microaggression thing with the cigarette, you know. It yeah. becomes the thing, you know, where where he uh, when when um, Cullen puts his cigarette down, Joker picks it up and tears off the end and then starts to smoke at the end that was in Cullen's mouth, and uh, and this this and then this just be, you know he says, well, "Are you afraid of catching my race?" Like like what what mm-hmm. what's this about? And then it's like all of these things that they've kind of been as much as they've been talking, it's also clear that they're holding, they're bottling up a lot too. And it sort of comes to a head here. Um, and then it's interrupted by Billy with a gun. Yeah. Which um, is, which is great. Right. Cause a, a, a little white kid with a gun has power over, over the two men, especially, especially the black man. Um, can I just say as an aside, the cigarettes bu- bug the heck out of me in this movie, because no matter how many times they get, they, they, they wade through a river and fall into the clay pit and they're in a driving rainstorm. Somehow they still have cigarettes and matches that work. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I assume that Kramer was aware of that as a continuity issue and just said, no, nah, we need to have them smoking is a so iconic, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. that's, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say when Billy showed up, I instantly thought about uh, the scene in Pulp Fiction where um, you have <laughs> yes. Marcellus Wallace and uh, and the Bruce Willis character fighting, and like you're so caught up in them fighting that, and they're so caught up that they don't realize somebody else walks up and pulls a gun on them, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, the dynamics have shifted. Now, what's interesting <laughs> about about when Billy shows up is. Uh, I mean, they they walk up to him and disarm disarm him immediately because he is a child, um, yeah. and they they knock him down and he bumps his head and, and it's Joker that wants to run and Cullen, I think realizing like this is the kind of thing that can get me killed, right? Right. So he's there to, to like to be like let's we need to make sure he's okay, and he's there trying to get Billy to come too. But the instant Billy comes too, here again we see the the dynamics shift he quickly runs behind joker and says protect me from him and it's like this is the person who's caring for you the other one person wanted to just leave you there right mm-hmm. but but there is the sort of racial identity so it's again um you can look at this movie just in terms of blocking too like like there is this sense of like okay we have a realignment now and joker sort of allows that realignment to happen a little bit right mm-hmm. he says even the billy says oh are you bringing him to prison and he's like something <laughs> right. like that right like yeah so um so then they they then they go to Billy's house and then we get the other um you know the other kind of conversation about uh another oppressed person um who's also kind of putting their uh uh point of view into this conversation um with with, with Billy's mother um so i i think it's i think it's really interesting like when 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 they get to the house, I think I, I, I watched this movie a second time and I was trying to track this. I think the first time that Joker calls him Cullen is when they're sitting at the table. Mm. I don't think you hear because I remember watching it the first time and it's like, I don't know his name. And it, it wasn't until when he and when he, he says it so late in the movie. Now, I realize they say it at the very beginning when they're reading the descriptions of them, but I missed right. it there. I think because I remember him saying Cullen and thinking. Hmm. Oh, I guess that's his name. So, so it's interesting in that setting is the first time. And when they, when they sit down, it's Joker. Who's like insisting, like, no, no, you need to feed him too. You need to get food for him too. Um, But then when they break the chains, again, here's another great blocking moment. The second that the chain is broken between them, you see Cullen grab the rifle. And again, we have this realignment where Hmm. we have the three white characters on one side and Cullen's Cullen. Then this is where it echoes back to the very beginning when he talks about what happens when these chains are off. So he's prepared to be like, well, everything that happened between us is different now because we are no longer actually linked together. I thought that was a really kind of really pretty powerful moment of thinking about like, I can trust you when we're, when we're stuck together, but can I continue to trust you? Cause he's pulling it on the family, but he's also pulling it on Joker too. He's like, this is the thing that gives power in this room. And I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I get it. Yeah. Which, which again is, is, uh, is, is a realistic recognition that these kinds of, uh, these kinds of tensions, uh, racial tensions, uh, so- social situations, social uh, constellations, those things are not easily overcome just by spending a few days together at uh, the other end of a chain. So, uh, so and in a sense, what happens in, in this interlude in the, in the film really kind of, um, it, it, really, it really kind of deepens the question of what would it mean for these two men to actually relate to each other despite their race. Um, and... James Baldwin was uh, was a was a critic of this film, especially at least of the ending. 
Uh, and one of the things that he said about it was, well, the film demonstrates that a black man and a black and a white man can only have a relationship in the absence of women. Uh, and so you have, mm -hmm. so that, right. So then we set up a triangle, which is really not just a triangle about black and white, but it's a triangle about male, uh, about male, uh, male and female. And so she is kind of the ultimate temptation for Joker to kind of gravitate back into the world that he more naturally fall, falls into, which of course he rejects, but at the same time in Baldwin's critique, it's because you can't integrate the three. You can't have black man, black man, and, and white woman. And we get that that really, uh, really well shot scene when they're at the car, and you're and they're, you know, he's he 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 eventually rejects it, but at that point, at that moment, like he is some. And here's where again the the identity things can shift, right? That he is able to think about a world that he can disappear into. Right. And there is, and they're having this conversation about how they're going to do this. And in the reflection of the window, you see Cullen appear and it, I mean, so you see that it's a triangle window. You see that, that triangle um, sort of play out there. And, and there is this sense of like, Cullen was not wrong that he was going to be uh, betrayed to a certain degree or, or, or if not betrayed, abandoned by, um, abandoned by Joker once they once they were freed and Joker had an opportunity. Although at the same time, they have to imagine they weren't going to stick together. This whole like the, you know the 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 point of this is not that they're going to live the rest of their lives together. But you know the 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 ending the ending for me, Sam, is really raises interesting questions about when does a film continue to be a social commentary and when is a film about a particular relationship. So, you know, a critic of the film, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, cite James Baldwin again. Baldwin criticized the end of the film because he said that Cullen has to jump off the train to be with Joker to reassure the white audience that they're not hated. And I, I can see that as a reading of the film, if you're going to keep reading it sort of symbolically, allegorically, or whatever. But I also, if I, if I strip that context away, and maybe that's unfair, maybe you can't, I, I see it as a, as a reciprocal act that in the same way that Joker has sacrificed himself for Cullen, Cullen sacrificed himself, sacrifices himself for, for Joker. Um, and, and maybe it's both and, you know, maybe, because you're right. I mean, what, if they go away on the train together, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Where, where, where does that leave them? And in a sense, where does it leave the film in terms of an ending? Uh, it's a much better ending in terms of the structure of the film and the imagery and all that. It's a much better ending to have them together like that as the sheriff comes upon them. But but to me, it, it's really an interesting kind of dilemma because um, I don't know whether it's my own racist attitudes that make me say, well, Baldwin's wrong. They had to do that sacrifice for each other. Or whether I should say, no, he's, he's right because you put the black man in the position of having to reassure uh, the white man. And of course, in terms of the of the civil rights context at this point, uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr. are trying to be sure they can win over the white allies. They have to be sure they keep their white allies sympathetic to their side. And you can see that as one of the dynamics uh, happening at the end of the film. So when we think about the ending, I mean, we, we, we haven't really talked a, a ton about the, uh, the pursuers, although we definitely um, talked about how um, Max, the the police, uh, the the sheriff is a uh, um, 
it's a very different approach to how this pursuit is going to go compared to the other people around him. Even the the state uh, state trooper, state police officer, the police captain who is um, militaristic. I think you would say like there's and Max even jokes about like what do you want to get? You want to get a tank and an armored division? Like like what are you going to do? You know to to sort of call in more people and and Max is is thinking about like. I mean, he's thinking about the humanity of these folks in multiple ways. You know, he's he's thinking about he's comparing. You know, when they're being compared to animals, he's countering that. Um, and when even even when he's saying, "Well, let's," you know, we need to rest, and he says, "Well, they need to rest too." You know, it's like it's like they're it's like they're not they're not these things that are just you know animals on the run there. But it's like they, if we stop and rest, it's like we're not really losing time because they are also people who need to stop and rest. He has a different sense of them. Although I don't know that we have any reason to believe that he knows either of these two, right? He's not the no. of the, of the prison. Um, uh, and you know, and he's, he's the one who is, uh, kind of trying to hold some of the, some of those other motivations back. Um, Although there is the there is the moment I find it interesting that that the movie starts that part of the movie starts with him bringing in a journalist, you know, and that and that the journalist is really his sort of sidekick more so than any of the other people. Um, but the journalist is the one around the campfire who points out like you're also facing re-election, and you know, and and Max is like you know it pays good money, but I like I don't need this job. And the reporter's like, you were never a very good lawyer. Like, maybe you do need... And you do see a little change in Max. He becomes a little more serious about the pursuit. But when you get to the very end, he's the one who's... You know, when they're about to release the Dobermans, he's the one who says no to that. And when he comes up to them, right, it's him alone with the gun. And when he encounters uh, Cullen kind of holding up the dying, um, I presume dying Joker, or at least very sick and injured Joker... And he's singing again. Um, one of the last shots of the film is you see Max put the gun away. I mean, he mm-hmm. still has caught them, but it's like, I, you know, um, what do you make of that whole, the singing again at the end, uh, Max at the end, Max putting the gun away at the end. Because uh, what, what, it, is, it is definitely a, an intentional, this is, this is the final moment, final shot of this. And as it fades to black, I think you get Cullen laughing, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I guess you could say, Sam, that the, the ending has its cake and it can eat it too, right? Because you could take it as a hopeful ending, you know, Max putting the gun away, uh, Cullen and Joker in each other's arms. Um, or you could take it as, uh, you know, nothing's really changed. Uh, things are still, still the same where they are. Um, there's, there's also an interesting historical context I just have to mention about um, the year before in Little Rock, Arkansas, there had been a big issue over desegregating a high school and the governor uh, who was up for re-election uh, took a very strong uh, racist stance against uh, desegregation. So I think there's a little bit of that context here with Max being reminded that it's an election year and why he has the reporter along with him, uh, hopefully to paint a good picture of him. So yeah, I think but back to the ending, Yeah, I, I think that you know, it, it, since it repeats the song at the beginning, you could argue that it's just we're, we're just going to go back in the same cycle. They're going to go back to prison. Nothing's really changed. But Max putting the gun away, maybe there's a recognition that violence is not the answer to solving our problems. Um, though, I just want to do some loose end kind of things here. As as um, So we talked about music in this movie. Um, the other source of music, and I don't know if this is just a 
comic relief element. Um, but among the pursuers, there is one of the kind of deputized uh, folks um, who has a who has a portable radio and he's listening to um, jazz music. I guess. I mean, that's kind. Of, that's what the um, uh, closed captioning referred to it as but like popular music kind of stuff um and he's constantly being told to, to turn it off um what do you make of that i, I like that was it like uh, beyond being a sort of comic runner throughout this like is uh is there something else to to glean from that yeah i think i think two things one is that the uh you know colin is associated with music so it's a reminder of colin's presence in the film but more importantly, I did take it to be kind of jazzy and jazz music is famously has its roots in African-American uh, spirituals and, and other uh, forms of music. So I think it's it's a it's an ironic commentary on the crossover effect of cultural art, of cultural creations like like music. So you get this white guy helping to hunt down a black guy, but he's listening to the black man's music. So mm-hmm. to me, I think that I think that's what's going on with that. We also need to mention that that uh, that that actor is uh, is Carl Switzer, who is yes, uh, Alfalfa. Alfalfa from the yeah, Little from Rascals. Uh, yes. Our gang, yes, yes, yes. Um, a couple other things that I read that were interesting to think about with this movie were kind of some of the the nearly casting. Um, so oh. uh, Robert Mitchum was orig- yeah. was originally in the the Tony Curtis role, um, and then Marlon Brando was. Uh, if not for some scheduling things would have, would have played that role. I actually think Tony Randall's really good in this. And I, he's not somebody, I mean, I, we saw him in some like it hot, but he's not somebody I have a lot of experience with. I don't really know him as an actor very much, but I thought he was quite good in this, uh, in this movie. Yeah. A lot of people didn't expect him to be very good. Um, of course, the, there, there was a legend surrounding Robert Mitchum that he didn't take the role because he was a racist. Um, and Mitchum said he didn't take the role because he didn't think it was realistic. He, he never thought that you would have a white man and a black man chained together. But the film deals with that right at the beginning. Right? The film expresses, um, incre- somebody expresses incredulity about this. And one of the characters, maybe it's Max, says the word has a sense of humor. So I, 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 you know, and I think as with any work of art, you got to take a certain amount of giving. So I'm like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there is a warden with a sense of humor like that. Who knows? Maybe he'll still kill each other and he'll have two, two fewer prisoners to take care of. So I was okay with that. Anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, we've been doing historical context a little bit, but um, five years after, so in, in, in the 63, uh, George Stevens Jr., the son of George Stevens, the director, organized a showing of a bunch of Kramer films in Moscow. So this is the height of the Cold War. And they show these films in Moscow and people loved it. I mean, the, the Russians shouted Kramer, 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 and Poitier was there as well. Um, the other thing I, I want to mention, just in terms of the film's significance, we talked about it as... Um, uh, as one of Kramer's social commentary films, but it's it's often thought as the film that kind of helped establish the pattern the, the pattern in Hollywood for interracial buddy films. So things like Silver Streak, Lethal Weapon, uh, even even Men in Black or or Rush Hour, all these films that pair you know white char- white and black characters. This film kind of was the first the first one to to do that. So it's you know I mean I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to call it a great film, Sam, but I think it's an important film. And I think it's a film that's well worth visiting. And I think for a film that's 63 years old that engages the issues of race, uh, it it actually stands up pretty well. 
uh, compared to other films. Yeah, the word I would use is a word that 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 you mentioned, which is um, I was it was is complexity that I was I was interested in how um, it could have taken this premise and and sort of thought about these things a little bit more simplistically, which is kind of what I expected. Um, and I think there was there was more complexity to it. I actually I really liked this movie. Um, this is one of those that like uh, I think about this in class sometimes. Like there are movies that there are great movies, and then there are movies that teach well. Where it's like, oh, you could use this to talk about a lot of things. Like I do think, like I said, I do think you could use this in a labor history class to talk about um, at least scenes from it to talk about race and and class. Um, so in that way, like it would it's, it's a it's a film that teaches really well, which is maybe part of what Kramer is after, right? Is something is like, there are some ideas I want to express. And I think I would say, well done at expressing those ideas. I feel like they come across clearly and, and they come across through dialogue, but they also come across through um, filmmaking, through acting, through performance, through uh, shot composition there, there, that, that, that it's, it's actually using filmmaking. It's not just the screenplay that does this. That's right. I, I have to I have to just mention one other actor in the film that I one of my favorite character actors is Charles McGraw. He plays the an incredibly stentorian voice state trooper. He's got one of the most distinctive voices in film, uh, and I recommend he's in a really wonderful little noir called The Narrow Margin, uh, which uh, he which is almost almost all the action is limited to a train to a train. So it's wonderfully claustrophobic. It's a very entertaining little film if people want to track it down. So what do you have for us for next week? Okay, so next week, Sam, uh, I, I'm going to stay with social issues. Um, but this time I'm, I'm going to shift into, I think we need to do with some Westerns. Uh, so uh, I want to do the Oxbow incident from 1943. Uh, I don't think we've done Henry Fonda any, in anything yet. So this is a this is a Henry Fonda vehicle, and I believe it's William Wellman is the is the director. So uh, uh, it's a fairly short film, uh, but I think it's an it's another film that raises some interesting social issues. Fantastic. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film. I I really I I really really liked this, um, uh, and I yeah I, I I was I was surprised by by sort of what I saw, and I think that this is a this is a good movie to have a conversation about and to dig into. And I think there's probably a lot more to mine. I will say we didn't um, get to, t- we, we talked about Billy's mother as, you know, a character in this triangle. We didn't get to talk about her as like another version of an oppressed group, you know, thinking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. about women. And so that's a whole nother conversation yeah. that I feel like this movie probably shortchanges a little bit because that's not the the core idea, but at least it hints at, Okay, there's another there's another conversation you could um, you could put in here. So, um, but yeah, but I, I really 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 enjoyed this. And so, thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. That's all the time that we have. But we will be back next week to talk about the Oxbow incident in the video store.